gospel rather than just looking at the stories Jesus told. And this is one of them in the house of Simon the Pharisee. So that's what we've covered so far tonight, Luke 7, as we've just read. Many people have said amazing things about Jesus in the Gospels. I, I love Einstein's quote, as a child, I, I, yeah, um, I received instruction both in the Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. How cool is that? Talking about Jesus there. And then he said, no one could read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Way to go, Einstein. So we are, we're going to look tonight at Jesus and really see him and slow the camera down almost and just pan in on, on Jesus and concentrate. Just looking at these first few verses, the first scene of this story, not the whole thing, might be good to come back and look at the rest of this story, but tonight just that first section, Luke 7, 36 to 50 is the story, but we're just looking at the first few verses. We're going to focus firstly on this woman. She's a sinful woman, uh, described as a sinner. She uh, is pictured here, crying on Jesus' feet there at this meal. Um, She's described as a sinner, which means she was probably a prostitute or she might have been an adulteress in the village. And later Jesus says her sins were many, so this is something she did a lot, and it was with multiple people, multiple times. It may well be that some of the men there had had relationships with this woman. So I want to ask you guys a few questions about this. I hope you can help me tonight. So lots of uh, getting you thinking, and I hope you can look up Luke 7, and you'll need to look at the text tonight. So if you could look in your phones or grab a Bible or look, look on with someone else, that would be excellent. Luke seven thirty six to 50. My first question is, what is Simon's concern? This woman is in Simon's house, Simon the Pharisee's house. What is his issue with her being there? What's his concern? Any ideas? She's a sinner. Why, why does that concern him? He shouldn't be associated with sinners. Yeah, I think that's hitting the nail on the head. We need to realise Simon is a Pharisee and the Pharisees believed in ritual purity, which means that you, they, beca- they believed that they became impure through association with those who are impure. So they would stay away from impure people. Uh, The Pharisees believed in outer formal purity. Now the emphasis of the Bible is on the inner purity of the heart. But the Pharisees, for example, would immerse themselves in mitzvahs, uh, which were you'd walk down these steps into a pool. Matt, we got that. And... um, Basically, it was a a physical cleansing, but it was also seen as a spiritual purification. And these are ruins of these mitzvahs are all over Israel, just hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them everywhere that the Pharisees and others used. 
So if they were going to the temple, they would walk down into this and then walk out again. And it was a physical cleansing, but they believed that they were pure as they went to the temple through that. They had this desire to be outwardly pure and associating with impure people, they believed, contaminated them. And I think this is Simon's basic concern about this woman coming in. Now let's look at the scene. It's a Sabbath feast and probably in the Galilee region. Uh, he's just probably preached at a synagogue and it was the custom in those days for a Pharisee to invite the visiting rabbi back to the Pharisee's home for dinner. So it's a Sabbath feast, all male. Um, and there they are feasting together at what was called a, a triclinium. So this was the, the shape of the table, a very low table. They would recline on their left elbow at the table and eat with their right hand with their feet behind them. Now, this meant that feet cleanliness... Do you want me to demonstrate there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> feet cleanliness mattered because the feet weren't under the table. The feet were in full view. And there were dusty roads, their shoes had open toes... And so it was important that they cleaned their feet as they came in. Okay, let's look at what this woman does. Let's list in order from the text what she does. What does she do first? She turned up, she enters the room with, with perfume, with an alabaster jar of perfume. What, what then? Yeah, she, she weeps. She stood behind him, secondly, uh, and she's weeping. So she's standing by Jesus' feet behind him as he lies down and she's weeping. What next? What does she do with her weeping? Wets his feet with her tears. Right. She's soaking his feet, so it must have been a lot of crying going on. Uh, how, much, how much crying does it take to wet someone's feet? <laughs> a lot, a lot of crying. Then what does she do? What? Yeah, lets her hair down and wipes his feet with her hair. And then finally, kisses, kisses her, his feet and um, anoints them with perfume, with the alabaster jar. Yeah. When did the weeping start, according to what Jesus says? Right at the end he says, from the time I came in, she hasn't stopped weeping. So right from the very beginning, she's been weeping. How much weeping do you need to, to do to wet someone's tears? A lot. So how loud do you think this was? Pretty loud? <laughs> Sobbing and wailing. Probably she was drowning out the conversation that the men were trying to have. So what has this woman essentially done to Simon's feast? She's mucked it up. She's disrupted it. <laughs> She's a woman entering a man's world and basically having a meltdown. She's lost it. The word used here for weeping is bre breco 
and it was, is used to describe rain showers by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so it isn't quite weeping, it's wailing. The word for kissing here is a really strong word. It means to kiss eagerly, affectionately and repeatedly. And back then in the ancient culture, it was really rare to kiss someone's feet. We have one story of a, a murderer who kisses his lawyer's feet who got him off from prison. That would be one of the few examples. And here she is. She's kissing his feet. Not done. She lets her hair down and she's wiping his feet with her hair. Anyone know in what situation would a woman let her hair down? Definitely not in front of non-family men. Thank you, yes. Only in the privacy of her own home with her husband. Um, so how do you think Simon interprets her doing this? What does he think of her? Maybe she's making a move on Jesus, yeah. Perhaps she's plying her trade, yeah. She's a woman, she's let down her hair in a public space, she's in a room full of men and um, it's a scene. So actually the Pharisees uh, allowed you to divorce your wife with no financial settlement if she went out in public with her hair unbound. So it was even grounds for divorce. But Jesus takes it as just an innocent gesture of, his, of her love for him. And she just is overcome by her, her love for him and she forgets where she is. So let's look a bit more at Simon. How is Simon relating to Jesus in this opening scene? What's he saying about Jesus? Yeah. <coughs> right. Yeah. If if you were a prophet, you would have known who this woman is, that she's a sinner. What do we call that? What has Simon done towards Jesus? Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yes, he's judging he, uh, Jesus and this woman. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly seems like he's heard the report that people are saying Jesus is a prophet. Uh, he's just raised the widow's son in Nain, which is not far away. And in chapter 7, verse 16, it says, They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So Simon has probably heard this news. People are saying he's a prophet. He raised this widow's son. Now Elijah raised a widow's son in Zarephath nearby and Elijah's disciple Elisha also raised a widow's son 
just one and a half k's away from Nain. And so Jesus is enacting this prophetic action. He's, he's raising this, this widow's son. He's saying, I am a, the great prophet. And people are saying, yes, a great prophet is among us. Um, a prophet is someone who saw people from God's point of view. A prophet is someone who spoke the word of God. And a prophet is someone who did things in the power of God. And people are saying, here he is, the prophet has come. And so I think Simon is partly picking up on that. He's kind of saying, no, you're not. You're not that. Um, I don't think you are. A prophet would not allow himself to get unholy by allowing someone unholy to touch him. And a prophet would know who this woman is. You know, that she's a sinner. You are not a prophet, I think he's saying. So let's go a bit further. What is Jesus doing that so bothers Simon here? What is Simon disgusted by in the, in the text? What does he say? Yeah. Sure, but what 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 is it that he's that Jesus is doing? You know, right? What's he doing? What Jesus is doing? What's he actually doing that so offends? He's letting her touch him, like he's letting her. He's not stopping her. Simon is disgusted by that, and um, basically Jesus is not doing anything. And Simon thinks, well, if you were a prophet, you would not allow this woman to even come anywhere near you. But you're letting her come near you. You're letting her touch you. Simon's disdain for Jesus we see right from the very beginning because Jesus says, you, when I came in, you didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't kiss me. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Simon didn't do any of the things that people do to a visiting uh, rabbi. A guest of honour like that would have been anointed with oil, would have been kissed on the cheek, they would have organised for his feet to be washed. Simon did none of that. Simon is so rude to Jesus. It's unbelievable. This, this in the ancient world would have been, you invite some guests over, then you completely ignore them. That's what it was like, what Simon did. So putting that together, what Simon has done is he's put Jesus and this woman in a box. He's judged Jesus for not treating this woman like you're supposed to treat a sinner. And he's putting this woman in a box just by calling her a sinner. So he's kind of inhaled the spirit of the age where people are defined by their past or they're defined by their family or if you've committed adultery then that's, who, that's what you're labelled as. That's who you are. That's what defines you. And the Bible never does that. The Bible never traps us into our sin. I was thinking about Jacob in the Old Testament. Um, he's a deceitful man, crafty. He could have been called Crafty Jacob. You know, he could have been known for that. But what's God's view of him? I think God's view of Jacob was more like he was a centre of surprise. You know, God didn't put him in a category. We're all centres of surprise. That is, repentance is possible for us. We're not, God doesn't view us as Oh, we're bipolar, that's it. You know, we're mentally ill, we're just locked into that forever and nothing can happen with that. No, 
Change is possible. He views us as capable of surprising people. Change can happen in our lives. We're not fixed in stone uh, based on how we live. What the labels that people give us do not freeze us into an identity. Um, our past, our sin, God loves us where we are, but he loves us enough to not leave us there. Repentance is possible. That's the Bible's view of the person. We are centres of surprise. So this is completely the opposite view than what Simon had. So let's look now at Jesus' reaction to this woman. How does he relate to her in this opening scene? He allows her to wash and kiss his feet, to anoint him with perfume. All these things that Simon was disgusted by, Jesus loved. He enjoyed her on some level. He wants her to be with him. He wasn't making a big deal out of what she was doing. He just let her do it. He, he allowed her to love him in, in the way that was right for her. And that was just her way of showing love um, at the time. He saw it that way. On a scale of, say, minus 10 is embarrassed to minus, plus 10 would be honoured, on that scale, where would you rank men today in our society if they were in Jesus' position? Embarrassed? Yeah? Just woman came, promiscuous woman like that, reputation, public space, making a scene over you like that. I think most of us would be just dreadfully embarrassed, yeah? Dreadfully embarrassed and ashamed. Um, what do you think Jesus, where, do, where would you put him on the scale? He's got to be honoured, he feels honoured by this woman. What kind of man would be willing to receive love from a despised woman and even see it as an honour? What kind of man? Right, okay. Right, yeah. He doesn't worry about the approval of others. Secure in his father's love. Yeah, I think that's, that's what allowed him to receive her love. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. Right. And in turn, he's honouring her, forgiving her, receiving her into the kingdom. Yes. What does human touch convey? It can convey sexual intention. It can be a path to sexual intimacy. So, that of course, there's danger. Jesus warns against inappropriate touch. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But touch can also mean what? Communication, acceptance, 
love, friendship, intimacy. Yeah. And this is how Jesus sees this gesture of this woman. She's extending love, friendship, connection, value. She's valuing him. Do you ever think much about why it's so hard to receive love? Um, Why is it hard to receive love for us? Are we worthy of it? Yeah. What do we need to do in order to receive love? What does it require of us? Humility. Yeah, this is going on and off. Humility. Vulnerability, yeah. The walls have to come down. Right. See, see ourselves how God sees us so again secure in God's love. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. And and she felt the love, but he was he was able to receive the love. Do you think it was hard for Jesus to receive her love? No, I think it delighted him. I think it delighted him. So, what's the difference between Jesus' view of purity and holiness compared to Simon's view? They have different ways of relating to those who are bad or impure. I've got a bit of a table here um, contrasting these two different ways. Jesus didn't feel like she was contaminating him. Um, Simon did. Jesus was receiving, Simon was rejecting. Jesus looked on her heart, Simon looked on her reputation. Jesus moves toward her, not away, Simon puts up walls. Simon has pigeonholed her, Jesus has not. Simon feels threatened. He completely judges her and doesn't even want Jesus to receive her love. I've said it in a different way than that, but there it is. <laughs> How, uh, there's just this huge contrast being presented. Well, the last area is Jesus' silence. Do we know for sure what Jesus' attitude is towards this woman at first? This is a harder question. Do we know what he was thinking about this woman at at the start? He didn't stop her, but do we know for sure? No. 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 There's no mention that he recalled from it, but he, he says nothing. He's silent. What do you think is the effect of Jesus' silence here? Say if you were one of the disciples and you're sitting there watching this happening and you're going, what are you doing, Jesus? 
allowing this woman to touch you. Do you like it? Do you want it? Should I jump in and pull this woman away? I mean, if I was a disciple, I might even be judging Jesus. How dare you allow this woman to touch you? What are you doing? Um, what do you want me to do, Jesus, I'd be thinking, right? Or what is Simon thinking? <laughs> oh, Jesus is silent at the start here. Right. Yeah, I think Jesus does this often. He puts people in an ambiguous place by not taking over too soon. This is actually quite a feature of how Jesus relates to us and to people in the Gospels. He often doesn't just rush in and take control. He waits. And there's an ambiguity and people are going, what, what do you want me to do, Jesus? Or what's going on here? What are you really thinking here, Jesus? Uh, just a few examples of that. Um, when the disciples are rowing on the Sea of Galilee all night, Jesus walks right past them. He doesn't walk to them, he walks right past them. And it sets up this ambiguous situation of, what are you doing, Jesus? <laughs> Why are you walking past us? Until such time as Simon calls out and then he comes to them. So he, he, you know, he gives his space to see what's going to happen, what we're going to do. Remember before Lazarus died when he was sick, Jesus deliberately delays going to Bethany where Lazarus was and he puts Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, through all this anguish. Because instead of going there when Lazarus was still sick and healing him, he allows Lazarus to die. And we're told he does that deliberately. And it's ambiguous. What are you doing, Jesus? Uh, the road to Emmaus is the same. He didn't reveal himself at first. After the resurrection, when he appears to Mary Magdalene, again, he doesn't reveal himself at first. Before Pilate, Jesus remained silent. And Pilate has to work out himself what to do because Jesus won't answer his questions. So Jesus often chooses to remain a little hidden, to, to not speak up, to not take control. He allows space for us, I think, to emerge in that sp by doing that. <laughs> and what happens, I think, is we, we kind of come alive I, I recall um, praying, I think it was 10 or 20 years uh, for Glenda to change. Sorry, Glenda. Uh, there were some issues in our marriage and I prayed just about every day and I'd go out on cricket pitches and scream and shout and yell to God about the situation and I was praying for Glenda to change. Um, has anyone else done that? <laughs> and uh, it didn't change. Uh, 10, 20 years, she didn't change. And Jesus, Jesus remained hidden. Uh, he didn't act or he didn't seem to act uh, through that situation. Um, he didn't take control of it. So what did I have to do? I had to change. I had to step up. And so during that 10 or 20 years, I... I began to pray different things. I began to pray about myself and how I needed to change. I began to act differently. I began to see different things. 
And because over 10 or 20 years I changed, then Glenda began to change. That's my summary of a couple of decades of our marriage there. Um, but I think God does that to us to force us to emerge or to create a space where we can emerge and where faith, deeper faith is created. And he wants to see what we're going to do. <laughs> so if we could diagram this, I think this is you know, what we want. We want a Jesus who just takes over and dominates the situation and he's with us in the corner. We want him to come in and solve all problems, make the relationship easy, you know, bring total joy at every moment and just do it all for us. And sometimes he does. But mostly he doesn't do that. Mostly it's like this. He remains kind of small in the situation and in our consciousness and our lives in order to give us space to see what we'll do and for deeper faith to be created. And I think this is what Jesus is doing for Simon and for the disciples, but also he's doing it for this woman. He's creating a space for her to emerge, to love him in the way that she wants to love him and to express deep love for him in the way that seems right for her to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair and anoint them with perfume. She, as a sinner, comes alive because Jesus allowed her to come and be the person she is in his presence. 